Hello and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 4, the British Grand Prix. Everything was going perfectly well for Mercedes, right up until it wasn't. Silverstone delivered a dramatic conclusion to the British Grand Prix, featuring bodywork failures, tyre blowouts and a last lap chase for the lead. Somehow Lewis Hamilton emerged from it all with victory, only just. And to dissect the chaotic final few laps of this race, and maybe even some of the other ones as well, I'm joined by Ed Straw from The Race. Ed, how are you doing? Yeah, really good, thanks. Yeah, uh, first Grand Prix I've been to well since Australia, so nice to get <laughs> back out and about, even if it is a little bit restricted. But yeah, it's uh, it's not quite back to normal, but something approaching normality. Yeah, for a lot of this race, look, it seemed very normal. If we talk about Mercedes being in control, being dominant, having the race at their feet, the championship in their grasp, that hasn't changed really that last bit, but the other parts maybe. This seemed like a very normal race. I really want to start at the end of this race first. Let's start from from the back, if you like. The last couple of laps when, you know, it really felt like this, this race was just winding up, we started to see Valtteri Bottas slow a little bit, suddenly going to more of a management mode than this race was already uh, forcing upon pretty much every driver, drifted away from, from Lewis Hamilton. We saw some blistering, didn't we, on that front left tyre to front tyres anyway. And then all of a sudden, it all went very dramatically wrong. The front left essentially blew up. It completely deflated, delaminated. Uh, and then the race began to turn on its head. It's not the first time we've seen tyre problems at this circuit, but it seemed surprising the way that it happened right at the end. No one seemed to forecast it exactly. Were you surprised to see such a dramatic end? Yeah, very much so. I was very pleased to see a dramatic end because <laughs> I was thinking during the race, I'm on strategy report and there's nothing <laughs> happening. So it, it kind of saved it, and I guess for, for everyone watching it. But yeah, the the tyres were not going longer than expected. I mean, it was longer than ideal strategy because that, that safety car had forced a slightly early stops. But Pirelli's prediction said that they should have lasted fine. So they weren't overly uh, worried about it. So even though everyone was doing the normal, oh yeah, got to keep an eye on the front left. You have that in every race. They were doing it in Hungary as well. So uh, I don't think anyone was sat there thinking it's all going to go mad in these these last few laps but thankfully uh thankfully it did and yeah you mentioned the blistering uh, mario Asola from pirelli said that they they were aware of the, of the blistering they weren't particularly worried about that last we heard they were still investigating the the reason for it there's every chance it may have been actually debris related from Kimi raikkonen's front wing there are a few bits left on the track and a few other drivers had cuts so that may have, have have created this situation, but it may also be that Silverstone is, is a super high load circuit. Obviously, the cars have got quicker, wider, heavier a few years ago, carrying more speed through these corners than ever before. So it's asking so much from the tyres. And there were, of course, concerns that carrying the tyres the, the over as they had as they done this year might cause some problems in terms of the the growing load so it could be down to that and i'm interested to see exactly what pirelli say it is I'd, if i had to put uh, ten dollars on it it would be on the, on the debris but that's far from certain at this stage good modest bit though i like it i think it's probably the appropriate way to go about a bit like that considering the tires you never can predict them 100 percent in formula one it's silverstone you touched on it there really high energy circuit and it's really interesting, almost as a bit of a test case when we talk about the development of cars in Formula One, because this circuit has gone from being one that is very downforce dependent in a kind of personalized way, a per car kind of basis, to one where the, the current regulations, the current era of, of aerodynamics is so heavily downforce laden that it's now almost getting to the point where teams are taking downforce off the cars because it's already there and they just want to go as fast as possible. 
this year the tyres are exactly the same as last year, both in, in compound selection and the construction. But as you said, the cars are developing all the time. Is this a little bit of a case, not to sound too dramatic, because at the end of the day, we can just have different tyres next year, but of the cars almost outgrowing Silverstone in that strategic sense, have teams approached this in a way that doesn't recognise that the cars have just gotten much more demanding on the circuit almost. Well, it's always a little bit of a into the unknown, isn't it? Because it always changes every year. And then, of course, you've got a tyre supplier who's trying to provide a tyre that works for everyone. And there's a huge difference between bolting a set of these tyres onto a Mercedes than there is bolting onto an Alfa Romeo, should we say. Plus, of course, Silverstone is one of the, the heaviest load circuits. So it, it's it's up towards the, the difficult end of the spectrum, should we say. So it it does make it uh, it does make it difficult. I suspect it wouldn't be a problem if we had a normal tire war going on as we had have had many times in the past. Most recently, when it was Michelin versus Bridgestone, I don't think it would be uh, be an issue. But controlled tires inevitably can uh, can create some some problems. But it is interesting the way Silverstone's changed because you're right. It's it's gone from a a kind of peak downforce circuit into what you might call a compromise circuit. It used to be kind of Silverstone, Hungary, Spain, Suzuka were probably your four really downforce-dependent circuits. But Silverstone's now moved out of that. You've got some of these stunningly fast corners, Abbey, Maggots, Beckett, Stowe, Cops. But, you know, Cops are just, for the most part, if you're in a good car, you're piling mm-hmm. into it flat out, which is amazing, really. So it does change. and It's amazing how what is the same circuit can create such a different challenge and we saw actually Ferrari this weekend by leaning off the amount of downforce they had to try and counteract the fact that they're down on power in in qualifying and then the idea was gain track position and then try and hang on to it in the race rather than start down the grid and then have pace but not be able to make it up obviously Leclerc nailed that strategy Uh, it didn't work so well for for Vettel but it means you've got these options and actually that probably made things a little bit more interesting because we saw a few different approaches obviously we saw the Haas the Haas cars well we didn't see Magnussen for very long but but Grosjean was a bit tricky to pass because the Haas was leaned off for, for exactly the same reason so that there's a bit more interest to it but there, there is just this this mystery sometimes about the tyres because you get what you're given with the tyres and although it's the same circuit as last year and the cars are to the same rules. The downforce level's gone up. The way that load uh, is is carried changes. The length of stints changes. And if you have a race like this where you're running longer, sometimes new problems can arise. But of course, then of course you've got the question of, of debris, and it could well have been been down to something as simple as that. So uh, there's always imponderables, and you can and teams try and control everything and get on top of everything and make sure nothing's left to chance. But there's always unpredictability and unexpected factors that can create chaos as they did at the end of the race. Absolute chaos, as it turned out. Changed the complexion of the podium quite a bit because after Valtteri, Bottas suffered really, like it's such misfortune for Bottas as well because not only was he relatively close to Hamilton in the race, even if there was some pace management going on, but couldn't have copped that tyre failure pretty much at a worst part of the lap. Had to do virtually the entire lap of Silverstone with three tyres on just to get back to pit lane really handed Verstappen that second place and then all of a sudden I mean Carlos Sainz also had a failure on the following lap that seemed like okay maybe this is just a coincidence and then all of a sudden Lewis Hamilton not just as per the graphics on the TV but actually Lewis Hamilton suffered the same failure with half a lap to go almost lost the lead but fortunately Verstappen had made that stop to try and take the point and indeed take the point for fastest lap with fresh tyres really dramatic conclusion to this race enjoyed Lewis Hamilton's description of just being icy cool in the car despite the fact it seemed like it was falling apart from under him but I I think not only was this obviously 
quite uh, unusual to see because it's very rare we have all these tie failures at once. Least uh, you know, little uh, least of all to the leader, but. For Mercedes, I think it is, because while Mercedes sort of as a team pushes the envelope a bit, normally quite safe with strategy. Now, I know the whole field was pretty much on the same kind of a strategy, had the same kind of idea, but were you surprised that they allowed themselves to be open to this strategy whereby the tyres really were running to almost the maximum wear life and became susceptible perhaps to debris or just failure? Yeah, exactly. And and even if it was debris, we did see some tyres that Pirelli said were at 100% wear. And of course, if you're that worn, you're much more susceptible to punches if there is debris as well. So these things aren't completely isolated. So yeah, I, I was surprised Mercedes, after what happened to Bottas, didn't then decide just to do a precautionary pit stop for Hamilton. They could have done. That would seem to be the sensible move and in fact they admitted that they probably should have done obviously there was a lot going on and it's easy to say on the outside but occasionally Mercedes are a little bit inflexible on that sort of thing I think sometimes you just have to make a call and say actually this is a sensible thing to do the downside is there's a vague chance we might mess up the pit stop but usually they're not going to and they could have taken their time a little bit over it so I was surprised Mercedes put themselves in this position they could also have earlier in the race pressed on and built up a a bigger cushion as well to to allow them to do a two-stopper a more conventional two-stopper should we say uh, if they needed to performance buys you that flexibility so I was a little bit surprised that they've absolutely dodged a bullet because they could very, very easily have have not won this race. Uh, Some of it was bad luck. Bottas, the timing was, as you said, absolutely perfect to inflict the (laughs) maximum damage on his his race. I I had a look, actually, because I wondered... Well, is there a, is was there any indication? Could they have got on top of it just before? But if you look at it, the time loss basically starts in the last couple of mini sectors, just as he's coming round club. So once he's gone past the pit exit, so they didn't have any time to to react to it, and then yeah, away it went. So extremely, extremely unfortunate. But yeah, I think at the end of that race, obviously. Lewis Hamilton did very, very well to, to get that car to the line in, in a relatively quick amount of time. And obviously, he he had to press on a little bit. They even gave him a, a higher en- power engine mode uh, to just try and gain him a few little tenths just to hold Verstappen at bay. But after that race, they'll be thinking, we absolutely dodged a bullet there because certainly with Hamilton, they could have played it more conservatively and they, they had everything they needed to do that. Obviously, a situation like this isn't really foreseen, but and we will touch on this on a, a more field-wide sense a little bit later, but you touched on the pace management there for Mercedes. Obviously, they're trying to make these ties last to the end, just about made it, at least in Hamilton's sense. But, I mean, Max Verstappen wasn't really in touch with these guys until obviously the very end when, when the ties started falling apart. Obviously, a bit a bittersweet, I suppose, might be the best way to describe Verstappen's outcome because it could have won this race had he known, but obviously pitted for that uh, new set of tyres for that uh, extra point for fastest lap. But while I can understand, uh, you know, all the teams adopting a, a similar strategy and kind of locking each other into competing on the on the same terms, is it not surprising? You know, Mercedes clearly have pace in this car, but like you said didn't really bother to try and extract it in this race is it just that they know that they have enough in hand to not need to because you mean realistically okay you could again never have foreseen the tires collapsing but things do happen in races that could have caught them out when they didn't bother to build a gap 
Yeah, I always think it's a good idea to try and give yourself a bit more of a cushion in a race. Obviously, there's the old thing about you try and win at the the slowest possible speed, as mm-hmm. Fangio, I think, once put it. And that's particularly important now, given you're limited on engine components, etc. You don't want to overstress the gearbox. Having said that, you want to be able to give yourself that that flexibility to, to react and respond. So I guess it's inevitable in this in a pace management era that if you manage the the pace to within an inch of its life so to speak you will end up occasionally running into these situations where maybe you could have done things differently to 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 make things very very different but i i also think there's there's a flip side of that coin uh which i'm sure you're going to ask me about but i'm going to preempt it in terms of the the whole question of should of should verstappen have, have made that pit stop i guess yeah, but, uh, but my my approach on that is and it's I don't think this is based in hindsight but if you're if you're chasing you know Red Bull you could hold a hundred British Grand Prix with those cars mm-hmm. and Red Bull would never be able to beat Mercedes on on merit on pace it's just not possible they'd have to mm-hmm. do it only through maximizing their race pace but problems for Mercedes now Mercedes did hit problems so while I understand why they went for that fastest lap point I think when you're the chasing team, the team that's trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat, you have to do everything you can in all circumstances, basically to try and get lucky. And that means keeping your car as close as possible. That also means in in other races, you might park your car in a safety car window, should we say, you know, run a little bit longer and think, well, we've got 10 laps, or if we get a safety car or a VSC, we'll actually gain track position. Lewis Hamilton won the Russian Grand Prix last year on 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 a safety car timing that a race he wouldn't have won otherwise. So it can happen. And I kind of feel that that Red Bull's, should we say, global approach should always be to maximise that. I don't really feel a fastest lap point's worth a great deal to them. And particularly once Bottas had the trouble, unless they had a genuine red alert, for want of a better word, on on the the tyre of Verstappen. And they talked about being a bit concerned, but I don't, nothing I've seen suggests to me from the radio traffic that it was a massive concern. I think they should have left the car there because you don't make it easy for the opposition. You say, well, do you know what? Your, Your teammates had a problem. You're up in the lead. Can you can you do it? Have you got a serious problem? Just ask the question. Say, right, we're not going to make it easy for you. We're just going to sit here and then see what happens. So that's why, in general, if you're a chasing car, I, I'd take that approach. Although I think if the roles were reversed and you're leading the championship, then actually you do take the more conservative option and maybe bank the fastest lap point because it's it's all about what your, your cast has. So, yeah, Red Bull needs to find a way to win races. And for right now doubly so at Silverstone where they're a second off in qualifying you've got to give yourself the, the best chance for the the car ahead to to trip up so I've answered a question you didn't quite ask at that point <laughs> well preempted though and you raise a good point because what I probably would have put in the context of this question was that Red Bull has typically been that team that has asked questions of Mercedes when they've been close enough since 2014, when no one's really been able to challenge them. When Red Bull's been kind of thereabouts, they've tended to ask those searching questions. And sometimes Mercedes has folded to them. Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I think a question was asked of Max before this race, perhaps it was after the Hungarian Grand Prix, about whether he thought he could win races this year. Now, of course, there's always the chance that they'll pick up occasional wins, but really forecast it wouldn't be until next season that he would be in the frame. It almost signals a bit of a change in mindset, as you sort of touched on at Red Bull Racing, from a team that is that one that always takes the most ambitious route to one that almost comes across. And I know this is an extreme scenario, so maybe we shouldn't judge too harshly, but almost a little bit defeatist. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, isn't there? I think it's this this question of well we're not going to 
obviously they couldn't catch Hamilton. Mm. That was that was impossible. Not not without Hamilton having a serious problem. But yeah, it just seemed oh well, we'll just take the pit stop and, and take the fastest lap point. And I, I feel it just didn't reflect the the race situation very well. And, and you're right, it's extremely on Red Bull. Normally they do roll the dice, and it, it doesn't come off that often. But if you do this in 10 races, 12 races, you might win one or two of them because of it. And that's what I think they need to be doing. And that's what they need to be doing for the rest of the season. So I do wonder if they'll think about that in in future, particularly when there are these tyre concerns. Because when push comes to shove, let's say Verstappen stays out and he does have a tyre failure, which not completely impossible. Now, there is a certain safety risk, obviously. You don't really want to have tyre failures at the, at the wrong point. And in fact, uh, I think Boemi and the Red Bull had a huge crash there in uh, tyre testing. I think it was last year yeah. uh, when a tyre tire let go. I think he got to Marshall's post. Uh, but yeah, you don't want to take a risk. But I'm sure if you'd laid that all out to Max Verstappen, he just said, yeah, let's just stay out. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> because because you, you never know, unless he, he had a proper, proper... Uh, dire concern so yeah it's it's a strange mentality because on the one hand you think it's a bit of a defeatist mentality but also it's a strange championship chasing mentality because it's kind of well let's get that point let's get the certainty <laughs> of one point rather than the admittedly far 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 longer shot of getting the the win and what would have been a I guess a 13 point swing if Hamilton had been second to Verstappen so it, it, it's curious and, and I think they've put a brave face on it Christian Horner always defends his team. He mm-hmm. always defends his drivers. You'll very, very rarely see a, a Mercedes-esque self-critique, shall we say. Mercedes are very, very secure in themselves, and they will be honest. Exactly why they've said, actually, yeah, we, sh- we should have taken that pit stop with Hamilton because they're, they're not afraid to say, yeah, it's easy when it hasn't bitten you. But I, I think Red Bull will be looking at that and thinking, actually, we didn't play that percentage very well. I think they were in a mindset of, oh, Bottas is going a bit slowly. Can we catch him? Oh, Bottas has had a problem. And I think they probably thought that was job done and almost forgot that <laughs> Hamilton was out there and forgot that implication. I'd have actually been saying, ideally, to, to Verstappen once that Bottas failure happened, to say, well, just you know, keep the pace up. He, he wanted to back off because he was worried about the front left. They were all worried about the front left and no one wants a tyre to go at... 170 miles an hour when you when it, you're loaded on it because it would be <laughs> be pretty uh pretty high speed off but drivers take these risks i always think back to the the Raikkonen one at the nurburgring back in 2005 when he was leading he had the huge flat spot and eventually it shook the suspension to pieces he had the failure but that was on the last lap so it was a worthwhile gamble especially because the mclaren was the chaser of renault and alonso in that situation and banking i think it would have been fifth place if they'd stopped didn't do them any good at all. So you, you take the risk and, and drivers are willing to, to to take that risk. So I think, I'm sure, in fact, if they had that race again, they'd probably leave the car out there, ask the question, do what you can. Easy to say, I know. <laughs> and they'll say to, to the end of time that they were happy with it because it was a second place game. But if you listen to Verstappen's radio on the slowdown that when they're just thinking through, oh, yeah, we could have got this. And now what have we got? Because what, what what's the value of one more win in the win column to Red Bull and Verstappen. It's absolutely massive. What's the value of a fastest lap? Very, very little. One extra point, one fastest lap, and fastest lap, I I find, is the great imposter of statistics <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, it's really frustrating. It would have been, been good for the season, really, wouldn't it, for a Red Bull to win? But, but there we go. Still dramatic. And I do think we have to give uh, Hamilton credit for kind of keeping his head and keeping calm because it would have been so easy to make a mistake or... So just go that little bit 
too fast and destroy the corner of the car or just spin it at, at club or stow or whatever so uh yeah they, they they did well there but red bull simply did not ask the question can you win this they they basically seeded the battleground before that that question was asked well perfectly judged by lewis hamilton and red bull racing does get another shot at this track this weekend although uh it's surely not going to Strike twice, you'd think, at least because the tyres are likely to be different in compound. We'll talk, we'll, we'll preview that race a little bit later on. I do want to go back to lap 12, though, because as you touched on, everyone had these concerns with the front left. Not to the same degree, of course. Some had it worse than others. Some obviously had their tyres let go. But everyone was worried about managing these tyres through to the end. And the genesis of that was lap 12. Daniel Kvyat's massive crash at Maggots and Beckett's. He was okay, fortunately. It ended up not being his fault, I think. Also a puncture, not related to the front left, but there was certainly a problem with the rear right tyre there. Uh, everyone came in, and it's really interesting, or almost everybody, we'll get to Romain Grosjean in a moment, and Alex Albon, but it's really interesting when the whole paddock has exactly the same idea. Everyone, for the purpose of this, switched to hard tyres. Everyone thought they were going to make it to the end of the race. Most of them did, of course. And that locked in a race of... It was essentially like a standoff, wasn't it? It's almost like everyone decided that there would be no more strategy in this Grand Prix, that we're just going to see how this is going to go. A couple of places made up in the pit stops, but it was then just going to be a race of management. And I will contrast this with Alex Albon in a moment, because he showed what, what more can be done when you're willing to push a little bit harder. But, you know, it must be quite frustrating for a driver, not only the tyre management aspect, because we hear about that from drivers all the time, but the aspect whereby they're not, really able to attack because the overriding picture is that overall race time which is to get to the end and i feel like we lost a bit of a race in this grand prix as a result yeah it's it's kind of the the inevitable law isn't it that that the the safety car will happen at just the wrong time whereby mm. the the windows open because obviously they have the safety car windows to say right we pit if if it happens and it always tends to happen that little bit mm. too early doesn't it it was probably you know, if it was eight laps later, that would have been ideal for uh, for people, but but it wasn't. So you just have to take your choice. And the fact that everybody took that strategy, I think there were seventeen cars running after it, and sixteen of them had had fresh hards on, and the only one who didn't was uh, the aforementioned Grosjean. So yeah, it, it was the logical thing to do. But then it did kind of lock the race down to a certain extent because everyone was more concerned about making sure they they got to the end they should have been all right on where they they thought they would be anyway but it did require management particularly a high energy circuit like silverstone so yeah it did kind of quieten the race down and we we saw quite a big drs train going on that basically the whole midfield was just sat there in an enormous queue and and if you look at it there's not a huge amount of moving around uh, going on there are a few drivers who gained or lost but actually if you look in the final reckoning you look at the end of the first lap and you look at the the end of the race there's not massive amounts of movement with a few exceptions so yeah it did sort of switch off the race shall we say it switched off the strategy and it switched off some of the the wheel-to-wheel stuff which was uh which is a shame and yeah I, I don't I don't really see how else it could have done there wasn't another strategy you could have you could have taken in a normal circumstances without being forced to uh, that that would have changed things, but yeah, that that I mean, Kvyat ultimately shaped this race, and without Kvyat's crash, uh, that finish probably wouldn't have been uh, what it was. A certain irony as well in that this kind of echoed last year's British Grand Prix, whereby Hamilton stopped behind a safety car. It was a later safety car, I think it was around lap twenty, uh, and that he did that once. He showed that a one stop was possible at this circuit when this time last year everyone thought it had to be a two stop, and in a weird kind of sense, he brought it on himself, didn't he? He brought this race upon all of us. But there was one driver who kind of stood out, and that was, well, he did, definitely stood out for quite a while, and then in the final reckoning, perhaps to 
to a lesser extent, was Romain Grosjean, who didn't stop. I guess this is a bit of an example, not dissimilar to, to in Budapest, where Haas sort of just said, well, we've got to try something. What else are we going to get out of this race? Left him out to essentially just get in the way of everybody. Uh, before we consider his defensive maneuvers and how that affected the drivers behind him, sort of benefited Charles Leclerc, didn't it? Because Leclerc ended up getting the podium out of this once the... The, the drivers with the the tire failures were shaken out of the order, and he did credit that a little bit to Romain Grosjean. I don't know if that was a bit a little bit tongue in cheek, but there was a degree of that because Grosjean being in there in the medium tire meant there was no chance for anyone to really attack Leclerc off the line, and that was just enough to ensure he kind of held that place down and it became a podium. Yeah, he, he certainly did. Uh, did Haas, uh, or rather, yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, Leclerc was done a little bit of a favour by Haas. It kind of paid back the favour Leclerc did to Haas and, and Magnussen last time out in Hungary because uh, Leclerc was a rolling roadblock on the softs. Mm-hmm. And without that, Magnussen probably wouldn't have, uh, well, he certainly wouldn't have, uh, have picked up the the 10th place it was in the end after after his penalty. So, yeah, it can help sometimes having these uh, these out-of-position cars. Haas are absolutely right just to take the track position. You, you, that's what you've got to do. That's, again, asking questions, really, isn't it? It's like, well, we're not, we're, we know where we're going to finish if we just roll around, so let's put the car somewhere unusual and see what happens. It didn't really play out for, for Grosjean, but he did a good job on those mediums because the car was quite slippery because they'd knocked off some of the downforce. He was tricky to pass, which obviously created some other situations. But that, that was the one area of interest. And I must admit, I expected Grosjean, I think everybody did, expected Grosjean to, to plummet quite quickly because this was very different to Hungary where not only did the Haas drivers gain track position, but they also had a reasonable time cushion at, uh, at, at times as well whereas Grosjean was just in that DRS train. But uh, yeah, he did, he did a good job, and I think he got to about lap 36, something like that. Uh, although apparently his uh, he was at about 100% wear on the front left as well, so uh, they, they timed that to perfection. But yeah, d- d- you know, d- decent job, and it certainly helped Leclerc and Ricardo after the race. Got to get Ricardo in for uh, the Australian audience. <laughs> he, was, he was really frustrated because he was so quick at the end of the race. Uh, obviously, he had a good pass on Norris, but he was only what one point one seconds, something like that, behind Leclerc, and, and he came so close to nicking that that podium. That Ferrari is not a particularly strong car, still. So, uh, ultimately, I think it was a combination of, of the race situation and Leclerc just doing a very good job that uh, that, that added up to that result. And you sort of touched on there as well, and we've mentioned the Ferrari having taken the downforce off this car, didn't seem afflicted by the tyre troubles as much as some others did. McLaren, obviously Carlos Sainz definitely did, being one of the cars that suffered a failure, but Lando Norris uh, noting as well that management of that front left was becoming a little bit critical for McLaren, not so much the case for Renault as well. And it again seems like, I don't know we're only four races into this unusual season, obviously fewer than four tracks as well, but we're not getting the absolute full picture of the performance spread here because in this race that's you know it's a very testing circuit and should have been able to see a variety of strategies locked in this race of management we had Renault McLaren and Ferrari ultimately all very close to one another unable to make a move on one another until the very end of the race in Ricardo's uh, situation we still don't have that proper picture of performance and of course Racing Point didn't even really play a part in the in the final podium five yeah, and there's certainly a lot of cars that have got the pace to to get good results. I think very small differences are adding up quite a bit. If you look, say, Leclerc in third place down to down to probably Bottas in tenth, we'll we'll discount uh, Bottas who was who was eleventh. You could basically just rearrange that order however you want because I think those cars are are, are all capable, perhaps with the exception of the Alpha Tauri. I think that was a question of Gasly really nailing his weekend. It's not quite quick enough. But, you know, the Renault is sporadically very quick. Funnily enough, it's not a, a great fast corner car at, at this stage, but 
that they they were reasonably happy, even though Ricardo was saying they they had to lift a little bit at uh, at cops, unlike some of the others. So yeah, I think the the performance picture is is muddy because it is so tightly condensed. And obviously, Racing Point is the big question mark. That Racing Point is a quick car, and to see it finishing ninth, and Stroll would have been eleventh without those two punches that Bottas and uh, Sainz had late on, is not really very good. I don't I don't feel. I don't think that the drivers, and that includes Perez as well, in earlier races, or the team have got the best out of that car this year at all. They they could have had a few podiums. They should be, you know, solid, nailed on top six uh, all the time, but they're not quite nailing it. So it comes down to teams needing to be operationally strong, drivers nailing it. You know, Lando Norris qualified fifth with just what was a really, really well executed lap. He nailed it. Reckon it was one of his best in F one, uh, and that's the thing that's quite good that because it's so condensed. If you do a really good job, you get a huge boost, should we say. I mean, Leclerc versus Hamilton for uh, third versus tenth is, is what illustrates that more than anything. So, yeah, I, I quite like it. But, yeah, you you can't definitively say of that group of midfield cars, if you could choose one of those seats to jump <laughs> into, you can't definitively say which one you choose. You might have an inkling, well, this one might be better, this one might be better. It's, it's going to kind of ebb and flow. And it will be interesting, again, to see... Yeah, this weekend whether whether that order changes dramatically, it's not going to take much just to to boost you up or or knock you down. One driver who is certainly hoping to to play a bigger role in the race this weekend will be Alex Albon. Another kind of difficult weekend for him. Looked early on, albeit early on in practice, that he had decent pace in what is a pretty difficult to drive car. But that difficult to drive car also ended up in the wall in practice too on Friday. Didn't qualify very well. Was outside the top ten. Had a first lap crash with Kevin Magnussen. Was penalised for it somewhat controversially. But did at least show that you know, he, he had, a, I suppose, what we would describe as an aggressive strategy relative to everybody else because he stopped in the middle of the race for medium tyres. The amount of time he made up in the second half of that race, purely because everyone was managing tyres, was almost shocking. It almost made you think it was a Mercedes coming through the back in one of those old races where they ended up out of place, which sort of doubled the frustration a little bit. But I guess that kind of flattered him in a certain sense, didn't it? Because this shouldn't have been quite an such an easy recovery for Albon and spared him his blushes a little bit in, in another difficult weekend. Yeah, well, he effectively was in a totally different race. Uh, actually, I think he would have been in the same race had they pitted under that first safety car as a precaution because they brought him in straight after when it was it was clear that that, that wheel wasn't wasn't right. But yeah, I think if you, uh, well, I say I think this is one of those esoteric sort of things <laughs> I, I look at. I think if you take the, the 22, if you take each driver's 22 fastest laps, Albon has the fastest average right. of all because of that because he was able to chase and he had some clear air because effectively after he'd had his his second stop he was he well he was last not effectively he was last so he had a lot of ground to make up and I think he passed half a dozen cars in terms of wheel-to-wheel stuff admittedly four of them were Alfa Romeo's or Williams's I'm not sure they count but he also <laughs> got Stroll and uh, and Vettel so yeah good for for Albon I, I didn't really like the penalty he got I felt Magnussen made a big error taking too much of that curve, hitting the, the sort of raised red bit on the inside, kicking himself wide. And that last bit of club is a basically an acceleration zone. I think maybe Albon, if he just kept his foot in and not tried to back out of it when he realised the door was closing, he might have got away with that. And they just said, well, Magnussen should have left space. But yeah, a tricky weekend for Albon. I think he's get, I think he is getting there. It just needs that moment for everything to, to click. First weekend working with new race engineer Simon Rennie, former Daniel Ricciardo race engineer, of course. So I think there's some progress to be had there. I don't think we're on a Gasly trajectory 
it's certainly not the same story as Gasly, put it put it that way. So I, I think there's still quite a long way to go for for Albon and, and he's got a tough ask in being up against Verstappen, but the pace it the pace seems to be coming. And I'd be very interested to see what he does at Silverstone this weekend. And some aggression in there as well for Albon, which I think is most welcome in that second seat. Speaking of this weekend, before we wrap this one up, we do have another back-to-back unusual in Formula 1, the second of the season. Austria got away with it on a bit of a technicality on account of the weather. This looks like it's going to be more straightforward back-to-back. Ties are a step softer, which you'd think would certainly push this into the two-stop territory considering what we saw this weekend. But how do you think teams are going to approach a a much more straightforward back-to-back situation? Obviously, some of them have some things to prove. Mercedes presumably should be looking to really control this race in a way that they obviously weren't able to in this Grand Prix. What what are the lessons that are going to be put into place this weekend? Well, I guess the first one it will be will be the tires, and it is interesting that they will go to the softer one step softer on the on the compounds. Actually, that might eliminate any chance of a repeat of this, even if this was even if these were wear driven failures, because obviously you'll end up being pushed more towards a two-stopper, especially as it's meant to be quite a bit warmer. It wasn't especially warm uh, for, I was going to say July, it's August now, though, <laughs> it? for, for an August summer's day, although uh, the famous English weather, of course, cannot be <laughs> relied upon. So, yeah, I think that will create some uh, some difference. Obviously, it, it'll create a real problem for uh, that midfield group because, obviously, this rule whereby you start on your Q2 tyre was designed to make things a bit more interesting for the slightly slower cars against the quicker cars, but all it actually does is penalise the slower cars mm-hmm. now, which has been the case for a couple of years, which is why it's a shame they haven't yet got rid of that rule. I think they probably will fairly shortly. Uh, but it means that if you're one of those midfielders starting on the, and you start on the softest option, which will be one step softer, that's going to make life pretty difficult, I think, in, in the race. So I think we'll see a lot of people trying to get through Q2 uh, certainly on the medium side, we saw people do that. Lance Stroll almost fell in Q2 this weekend mm-hmm. doing that. He set the same time as Gasly, but because he said it first, he he was P10 rather than P11. So, yeah, I think we'll see a lot of that. And, and I think we'll see a lot of teams just trying to make sure they do extract the most from their car. We might see a better performance profile, should we say, with a little bit less variability because they'll understand how to set things up. The drivers will be dialed in. We didn't actually see properly in the Styrian Grand Prix what the back-to-back impact would be because the second race was uh, was a, a wet qualifying so it, it scrambled things uh, so I'm quite interested to see what happens there and and, and who improves and you've got question marks like can Vettel do better with the the, the low downforce uh, setup of the Ferrari relatively low downforce because that that didn't work for him you know Renault is an interesting one because they've got a car that sometimes it's really really quick and you think wow that, that could be right at the front of the midfield Sometimes it looks like it's kind of more down towards the bottom of it and they need to extract some qualifying pace in particular. So, yeah, you've got a group of four teams that I'm particularly interested in, which is the Ferrari, Renault, McLaren and Racing Point. Uh, and, of course, there's a question of can Nico Hulkenberg, who I expect will be in the car next weekend. It's not 100% confirmed, but I'd be very surprised if Perez is able to get out of quarantine as well as testing uh, negative on that time frame. So, that group of four is is really key. And it's kind of that group of four plus Gasly who tends to be the interloper uh, in qualifying. But, you know, you've got Charles Leclerc who finished third. He could easily, if he does half a percent worse job, end up finishing ninth. Mm. You know, Lance Stroll does fractionally better. He could finish third. Uh, and actually, probably of all of those, Racing Point is the one that is the most interesting because they've got to start getting the most from that car because 
right now they're not. And it's not just Lance Stroll, uh, who I do have reservations about as a driver. Checo Perez hasn't been perfect. Nico Hulkenberg obviously couldn't even start mm-hmm. his car. So, you know, what, uh, <laughs> what, what, what can he do? So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a, an, an interesting one. The, the, the resolution we get from Pirelli will be significant because if they discover it was where uh, rather than debris, then they may take some action. There are things open to them, such as stipulating a slightly higher tyre pressure if they want to. Uh, they could even go extreme and, and set a limit on how how long a stint you, you run. I suspect that's unlikely. So that that is a random factor, should we say. But if you're Mercedes, you're saying, right, we've got the fastest car. We should be finishing 1-2. And if you're Red Bull, you need to say, actually, let's make sure this time that our car is parked in an awkward place just in case something uh, something befalls Mercedes because you know fastest lap point isn't much solace when you uh, when you could have could have won a race it should be an interesting grand prix just as this one was even if it was only in the last handful of laps and ed pleasure to talk about it with you yeah a pleasure and i'm pleased that there was some strategy to bring to the <laughs> strategy report otherwise i'd have i'm sure i'd have found something to speak about as you can tell i i i, I can ramble on endlessly That was Ed Straw from The Race. If you enjoyed his analysis of the British Grand Prix, you can hear more by downloading the Race F1 podcast. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can download every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your socials. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and if you're looking for an alternative take on the British Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcast app of choice to hear an argument about Elton John lyrics. My name's Michael Laminato. You can look me up on Twitter at Michael Laminato. And I'll catch you next week for a review of the F1 70th Anniversary Grand Prix.